Part Ten of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Grecians: A Dialogue on Education by James Elroy Flecker, sometimes scholar of Trinity College, Oxford and student interpreter of Keyes College, Cambridge, author of thirty-six poems, etc. Narrator, recorded by Algie Pug. Hoffman, read by Ben Lindsay Clark. Edwinson, read by Martin Geeson. Smith, read by Phil Benson. Preface In a technical matter such as education, only the experienced seem to me to have a right to speak. For this reason only, I think it worth while mentioning that I was educated in one public school and have lived most of my life in another, that I passed four years at Oxford and two at Cambridge, and that it has been my duty as civil servant to learn some eight or nine modern languages. Literature I have practised and art I have studied but my chief claim to the kind attention of my readers is, after all, that I myself have been many times, and in many places, a schoolmaster. I have tried to make this dialogue resemble real conversation, and have aimed at abruptness, vigour and compression, rather than at rounded periods and exact arrangement of subjects. And this I mention in case any reader, offended by a merely artistic violence of language, may imagine it expressive of thoughtlessness or lack of sincerity on the part of the author. The British Consulate, Constantinople, September 1910 Chapter 1 The Three Englishmen Outside Bologna, that old and wise city, rises a little hill with a large prospect called San Michele. The bends of the zigzag path which leads to the summit of this so magnificent hill are embellished with delectable arbours where fat babies play and their young nurses sleep during the long drowsy evenings of late summer. Such an evening I would have you imagine. Picture to yourself the babies engaged in innocent diversions, the little nurses wandering with princely lovers in the forests of their dreams. Suddenly. A tremendous trampling startled those gentle souls. A little man, with hair and beard of that ferocious orange colour which we call red, with iron-rimmed spectacles bobbing on his nose, and a heavy gold watch-chain swaying against his chest, was thundering up the hill as though it had been the Matterhorn, and he an enthusiast for records. A sight to make babies cry, and nursemaids laugh, was Henry Hoffman. And strange were the clothes of Henry Hoffman, his black trousers, his Norfolk jacket, his green tie. Funny man, said the babies, in Italian. Pozzo inglese, replied the nursemaids, and slept again. Hoffman paid no attention. Intent on higher things, he crashed through a row of trees and attained the top. There might you have seen him stalk to the parapet wave his arms round his head with fervour and delight, and slap himself on the chest. "'Grand!' he cried. "'Magnificent!' he shouted. 
and had he been, as his father was, a German, he would have added, Colossal! Then, arms folded, foot on parapet, absurd and twisted body silhouetted against the eternal sky, he stood, he gazed, he exulted. It was only the view over Bologna and the plain that had called forth his admiration. After all, few men are epicures in prospects. All healthy persons will climb to see a view, and it takes little to thrill these aesthetic gluttons, provided the weather be clear and they can see plenty at one time. For no regions of this world are totally unpleasing when viewed from an eminence. Henry Hoffman had seen a hundred landscapes finer than this, yet this was fair enough. A hundred miles of silver plain reflected the fitful shadows of the clouds. A faint blue haze hid and hinted the Adriatic Sea, and the peculiar quite fire of sunset deepened to crimson the cheerful red of Bologna's roofs, and shone right through the little windows of the two great towers that dominate the city. Let us leave him, gazing at the Torre degli Asinelli, and consider a companion of his, who has just arrived, a very bad second. This grizzled, middle-aged man, of uncertain aspect, presents something of a contrast to Hoffman. We note the newcomer's rather fine features, marred by an incessant frown. We approve the decent obscurity and neutral tint of his clothes. His raiment, well brushed, without style or flair, seems to be like its wearer, to be something to which no one could reasonably object. His method of walking, moreover, is unobtrusive. His voice, as he exclaims, Here we are, Hoffman, is not annoyingly brusque or strident, but verges on a mellow cheerfulness. Yet beneath the contrast which these two men present lurks resemblance, and the indefinable, ineradicable stamp of a great profession marks both those pairs of weary and watchful eyes. Ah, it's grand, shouted Hoffman. Grand! Only three days ago I was taking my horrible chemistry class, and now I'm on a hill looking at this. He swept his arm round parallel to the horizon. Ah, those boys, indeed, said Edwinson quietly. Yes, it is pleasant to be free of them for a little. Yet I am fond of them, very fond of them. At my age I couldn't give it up. I couldn't do anything else but teach. It's dull work, <laughs> our trade of instruction. But there are times when I feel it's rather a grand work. Now this city, Hoffman, is the foster mother of education. Bologna has one of the oldest universities of Europe. Teaching in those days must have been much more delightful, when each new book read was a new country explored, and each pupil taught was a new friend won. What a beautiful city it is, with all those useless, insolent, aspiring towers, so like Oxford in a way, and so emblematic of that profitless, beautiful training of the mind we try to give. So like the education you medievalists try to give, grunted Hoffman. 
I have to teach facts, but it's getting late and dark. And all the ways are shadowy, broke in Edwinson, quoting the stock translation of Homer. And I am hungry. Let us go down to the city and eat. So saying, the unobtrusive Edwinson took his companion's arm, a thing he had never done before during their six years of common toil, and, arm in arm, they sauntered down the hill. To explain this unusual, almost emotional, impulse on the part of Edwinson, we must remark that it was the first visit of these two men to Italy. Indeed, it was their first day in the country, if we exclude the inevitable halt in dreary northern Milan. True, they had been twice abroad together before. They had been for one walking tour in Brittany, and one in the Black Forest. But, as a rule, Hoffman spent his winter holidays with his people at Gospel Oak, and visited a seaside resort, Southsea or Worthing, in summer. With equal regularity, Edwinson retired to Hampstead, or in the bright season of the year took some of his more brilliant and attractive pupils with him for a reading party in Devonshire. This Italian journey had been a bold venture, meticulously pre-arranged. Expenses, routes, second-class fares had been calculated with nicety and a baedeker, and there had been much diligent self-teaching in a tongue which Hoffman found hard and learned thoroughly, and Edwinson found easy and mastered ill. The whole thing was an event. Events are rare in the pedagogic life. When they reached the walls of Bologna, Italian cities are still walled, they took a tram, which passed along the endless, lovely, arcaded streets, and brought them back to the vast central square that has its name from Neptune. They had decided against dining at their hotel, and sauntered vaguely along the Via Ugo Bassi to find a suitable place of refreshment. No easy task, when sumptuary expense is to be avoided, and cheap squalor shunned. At last they halted, and boldly pushed open a creaking door, for favourable chance had led them to the Toscana. Here, in term time, assemble the students of Bologna. Here, when there are no students, the modest traveller is welcomed with cordiality, and served with dispatch. They seated themselves, and Edwinson suggested timidly that the wine of the country might be both cheap and good. "'Wine?' said Hoffman. "'Course we will drink wine. The water would probably be poisonous.' Their debate was cut short by the arrival of their wine, unbidden, in a shapely wicker-covered flask. Next, at Hoffman's unhesitating command, arrived spaghetti. This dish had a lot of local colour, but they found it dull. And veal cutlets a la milanese, which strong men eat every night. And they ate this, and drank enormously of the wine, conversing and laughing without cease. The restaurant was full, the waiters rushed about, the incessant clatter of spoons and forks and knives on plates, dishes and glasses was most exhilarating, while expectoration was for Italy comparatively rare. The two friends were only halfway through their cutlets when they were disagreeably interrupted by the arrival of a stranger, who hung up a sort of large felt sombrero in such a way as to obscure Hoffman's old but comfortable cap, 
and prepared to sit down beside them. Hoffman was bored, and being an honest man, immediately looked what he felt. Edwinson drummed with his fingers on the table. I hope you will excuse me, said the stranger to them in pleasant English, but the place is quite full. Looking up, they saw before them a young man of elegant figure and handsome appearance, indeed a remarkably splendid young man. Hoffman thought to himself that the newcomer had rather a womanish face, but he ignored the strong chin and resolute thin mouth, and was considering only the complexion. If Hoffman had justly realised his own feelings in the matter, he would have found out that he esteemed all beauty a rather womanish thing, unworthy of serious attention. Edwinson, meanwhile, gazed intently on the young man, and since he held the neo-pagan idea of Greece, mentally raved about Apollo. Yet no one could have been more unlike the swarthy, straight-nosed Greeks than this merry-eyed young man, with long light hair, high cheekbones, and a vivid colouring. No one was less like a lay figure for idealists than this youth with his strong torso and his whimsical and lively countenance. However, Edwinson's admiration of the fascinating stranger even increased when he heard him order special local dishes and wines with an Italian accent so graceful and correct that it seemed far above anything a mere native could possibly have achieved. By the time the young man turned to look at the two schoolmasters, their ill-humour had vanished, and their conversation, instigated by Chianti and an audience, had become more brilliant than ever. To Edwinson returned the fire of his Oxford days, for long ago no one more often than he had sent the sun, and the moon too, to bed with talking. Social qualities, said his friends, had spoilt his chances, never too brilliant, it must be confessed, of academical distinction. Hoffman was once more the penurious lad who, in the rare hours, snatched from the arduous study of science, used to electrify the Gospel Oak Ethical Club with his incisive wit and outrageous opinions. The stranger put in a word here and there, yet hardly entered into the conversation but maintained a mysterious, though friendly, reserve. He vouched safe nothing about himself, save that his name was Harold Smith, a severe blow to Edwinson, who had imagined him to be of noble parentage. When the meal was at an end, Hoffman was so delighted with their new acquaintance that he was preparing to ask him to come and take coffee with them. But he was forestalled by Smith, who leant over towards them, and in a voice of extreme charm and gentleness, said, I hope you'll do me the favour of coming round to my place. I have a little room of my own in a back street here, which we may find a little pleasanter than any café. They willingly accepted this novel invitation, and followed their guide through the colonnades of Bologna, whither they knew not. They entered a low and obscure doorway, toiled up a painful staircase, turned a corner, and found themselves in the sitting-room of Smith. It was a small room, but comfortable beyond all an Italian's dreams, and beautiful enough to satisfy the most exacting of Cambridge aesthetes. A dim reddish light suggested tapestry hangings, surprising pictures, and innumerable books. Yet for all the display of furniture and fabrics in a small space, the room was mysteriously cool. Hoffman, turning his eyes to the bookshelves, as reading men will, 
was delighted to find his beloved moderns, Teutonic and Scandinavian, bound in pigskin and arranged in order, while Edwinson marked, with delight, the rows devoted to the classics, for he was a devoted scholar, although so pathetically second-class. Smith let them busy themselves with inspection while he prepared an excellent coffee. Soon they drank it, not unaccompanied by seductive liqueurs. Then pipes were lighted with English tobacco, glasses filled with Scotch whisky, and there sank into armchairs worthy of the noblest university traditions two happy middle-aged schoolmasters, clothed in drab and a little beside themselves. And then it was that Harold stood before them with uplifted glass and swore in Italian, German, and English that they should drink the health of their glorious profession and drain their glasses to the education of youth. End of chapter 1 End of part 10